Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Good day, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Countrywide. I'm Hannah Joes, speaking to you from Dubbo as always, and today we'll be talking about a bunch of things. One is the emerging seaweed industry and what is driving its expansion. You'll also hear about a new trend in fishing if you're into fishing, and later how heavy industry is trying to negotiate its decarbonisation. But first we're going to look at magic mushrooms and the surprising, or maybe not so surprising, industry that's growing around it. Now, a company in Western Australia has been given the green light to start trialling magic mushrooms to treat depression. And as Georgia Hargreaves explains, if everything goes to plan, the company will also be the first in Australia to legally grow this sort of mushroom. Magic mushrooms have been used for thousands of years for medicinal and ceremonial purposes by Indigenous people throughout the world. In recent times, they're probably more known because of their use at festivals and parties. But magic mushrooms are a psychedelic drug that contains an ingredient called psilocybin. And some scientists believe it could be used to help treat certain types of mental illness. UWA Professor Sean Hood is the principal researcher for what will be WA's first clinical trial using psilocybin to help people who have treatment-resistant depression. He says patient welfare will be the number one priority. Look, I think uh, with any new medication, part of our job is to minimise any of the risks and to do it in a controlled and careful environment. Hence, the way we are dosing in this particular study is we have two well-trained clinical psychologists that will be with the patient throughout the whole day of the dosing to follow their dosing and any responses they have to that. It'll be undertaken in a, in a set environment at Perkins um, South a hospital facility. They'll be monitored throughout that whole time. We, of course, have um, contingencies for any adverse reactions or any emergencies, etc. So, yes, it'll be highly controlled. This is a novel medication that we're really understanding that works for depression, but we, you know, we've struggled really to see what the role of these medications are. And part of our job is to see how this can be safely administered to patients in a way that can be replicated in other clinics, um, hopefully down the line. The company sponsoring this clinical trial is Reset Mind Sciences, which is based in WA's southwest. CEO Sean Duffy says they'll be importing the psilocybin for this research from Canada, but the long-term goal is to produce and cultivate the drug right here in Western Australia. And if that happens, they'll be the first company in Australia to legally grow magic mushrooms. There's two ways you can source psilocybin for use in in a medical sense. One is synthetically produced, so it's manufactured in a lab. They're just the, the molecule that's within the magic mushrooms. Or the other way is to grow mushrooms and then extract the psilocybin from the mushrooms. So we are, as a company, we will be growing mushrooms with a view to producing pharmaceutical-grade psilocybin, but we're not ready to do that yet. But for the moment, we'll be purchasing synthetic psilocybin from Canada for use in our trial. Okay, how long will it be, do you think, before you'll be ready to start actually commercially growing these mushrooms in, in WA? Uh, well, we will be growing them within weeks. We have built a special purpose grow room for the mushrooms, which will be housed at an undisclosed location, but um, 
that we have all the licensing in place to do that. So the grow room is in its final commissioning stages now and will start operations within the coming weeks. Then once we have uh, started growing mushrooms, it's a separate piece of work to start then extracting the, the psychoactive ingredient psilocybin and producing that to pharmaceutical grade to, uh, to the TGA standards. And, you know, just like with medicinal cannabis, I'm sure there are a few people out there that are pretty resistant to this idea. What would you say to them? Look, to be honest, I see increasingly less people resistant to it. I think that, um, you know, mental health issues are so common, so commonplace. Everyone I speak to either has personal experience with mental health issues or is only one removed from a family member or, or close friend that does. So, I think a lot of the way mental health conditions are treated at the moment is is with antidepressants and they are a treatment that just manages the symptoms. It doesn't get to the underlying cause. So there's a lot of pent up demand out there from people to explore other treatments that might be able to, to deal with the underlying causes of mental health. So certainly with the weight of clinical evidence, and I, and I would stress that um, the treatment in this regard has got to be evidence-backed. It's It's got to be scientifically validated, but Certainly the work done to date indicates that there's great promise in that regard. Reset Mind Sciences CEO Sean Duffy. Magic mushrooms are not the only psychedelic drug that's been talked about in the mental health space recently. Eternity Housen is the co-founder and CEO of Enlightened Mental Health, which is Australia's first online mental health practice which focuses on psychedelic harm reduction and integration services. She's also spent 14 years working in the military, so she's passionate about helping people with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And she believes psychedelics could really help people who are resistant to other treatment options. It's common that a lot of defence personnel have complex PTSD, depression and anxiety, and often they don't get the results they want from the treatments from different antidepressants. And so there's alternate pathways out there, and one of them is um, ketamine-assisted treatment. So we've helped pave the way for many defence members to receive that, as well as DVA clients as well. But what we're finding is that the general population and it doesn't matter if they're defence or ex-defence, um, people are taking the, the mental health into their own hands and they are trying psychedelics in a recreational setting for their own mental health treatment. But I think in terms of what needs to change is it would be great if the general public could start recognising that these uh, substances um, have the potential to be a therapeutic medicine. These substances, if they're proven to be effective in a clinical trial, it may not be just one or two people here or there that are offered these substances. There's so many people out there who have what we call treatment-resistant depression or PTSD, and they would benefit from having access to these substances, which is why the clinical trial is so important, because we need to just get the ball rolling um, so that we're closer to offering access to these substances in a very clinical and controlled manner. I think the general public as well will benefit from understanding that these substances are not going to be freely available. They would only be giving out, given out in a clinical setting by a number of doctors with therapists there, and it's unlikely we'll get to the stage where patients can take it home. It's always going to be in a controlled environment. Enlightened Mental Health CEO Eternity Housen ending that report by Georgia Hargreaves. You can read more on that story online. Just search ABC Magic Mushrooms. Now, if you're interested in fishing at all, this may be a story for you. There's an exciting trend in fishing catching on in Australia at the moment. 
with pest-busting anglers deliberately targeting invasive species like the rapidly breeding European carp. As Jennifer Nichols found out, they won't be able to halt the spread of the cane toads of the water, but combined with restocking native fish and education, their efforts are making a difference. I got that other big one, Paul. Like I could see him in the nest, and so I just dropped it in the nest and waited for him. When Jason Murdoch survived two heart attacks in three days at the age of 42, he decided life was too short to not pursue a passion with purpose. He's got a bit of spirit, this one. The first time he tried pest fishing, he was hooked. In the space of an hour, I caught seven fish and I just thought, how good is this? Just had an absolute ball and have been passionate about it ever since. In a man-made lake in suburban southeast Queensland, Mr Murdoch discovered an environmental battleground where native fish are being outcompeted by one of the world's most invasive fish, an aggressive species called Mozambique tilapia. Just look down into the water or you can see your schools of these fish. A telltale sign is their nests, white round patches stripped of aquatic plants. You catch them on worms, you catch them on lures, they're predatory and they will attack to defend their nests, they will eat other smaller fish and I thought well why not combine my love of fishing with doing something good for the environment and trying to remove as many of these pests as I can. Pest fish busting is a catching trend with Facebook community groups and YouTube channels committed to the cause. The eco-anglers are targeting carp and tilapia, a noxious species which were introduced to Australia in the 1970s as an ornamental aquarium fish. Described as the cane toads of our waterways, Mozambique tilapia are considered one of the greatest threats to Australia's aquatic ecosystem. They're found across the eastern seaboard from Victoria to far north Queensland and in western Australian waterways north of Geraldton. The Northern Territory and South Australia are on alert. Making sure that it doesn't get into places like the Murray-Darling Basin is going to be quite critical because once it gets into the Murray-Darling Basin, we'll find it spread through southern portions of Queensland right through to South Australia quite rapidly and that will be a disaster for those environments. James Trezise is the Invasive Species Council's conservation director. He says tilapia are a real threat. They thrive in warmer waters but can cope with conditions between 8 to 42 degrees. Tilapia can survive in both salty and oxygen-starved waters and invade lakes, ponds, reservoirs, rivers, creeks, drains, swamps and tidal creeks. And what we also need to see is concerted action to suppress and control and try and eradicate tilapia populations where it currently exists and that involves investing the resources and funding to get on top of these infestations. Fisheries Queensland and New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia have put a group together as the realisation that tilapia is no longer a Queensland problem, it's becoming a national problem. As president of the Queensland Freshwater Fishing and Stocking Association, Charlie Ladd's eager to educate anglers. Although tilapia are a popular aquaculture species overseas, it's illegal to keep them in Australia. There's a lot of people now in our community come from countries where tilapia is their primary food for protein. But here there is strict law that if you do catch a tilapia or a carp, same rules apply, that you must kill the fish humanely and dispose of it either bin or berry. You cannot use any part of the fish, you can't take a fillet off.
and throw the frame away and take the fillet home. There's good reason for this. Mozambique tilapia are mouth breeders. Females gather up eggs from the males' nests and carry them in their mouths until well after they hatch. Both the eggs and baby fish can survive if their mother dies. And if we don't dispose of the fish properly, there's the chance of a young or eggs getting back into the water. But also too, if you allow people to take them home, it then puts a value on the fish where people then will be encouraged to spread them around. Pest fishing competitions backed up by native fish restocking programs are one way to make a difference. Pest fish comp, you remove the big fish that breed and if you stock with bass and Mary River cod, they all take on their young. They will eat the young, so you're attacking it from two fronts. In one of the lakes Charlie Ladd's been targeting, they're now catching more native fish than tilapia. You'll always have pest fish there, but if you can keep native fish population stocks up, you've got a chance of controlling them. Gold Coast City Councillor Herman Vorster and the Gold Coast Fishing Fanatics hold an annual fishing competition, removing around a tonne of tilapia and carp in just one day. We get hundreds of anglers there on their kayaks and from the shores pulling these fish out. It is an enormous amount of biomass. But Samantha Beck would like authorities to go further and reconsider bans on fishing in some freshwater areas. It seems like they're being protected to a point. Some councils are trying to do things about them. Whether they're doing enough, uh, that's not for me to say. Ms Beckman owns two bent rods. She runs pest fishing competitions in conjunction with local councils, but says bans on fishing in some freshwater areas need to be reconsidered to reduce the pest load. They're all over the place. We run from the Gold Coast to Marucci Door and they're in nearly every waterway. Passionate pest busters like Jason Murdoch are keen to do their bit. Every fish I remove is one that's not going to breed. Some people might go, you're crazy, you can't take these fish home. You're fishing and never taking fish that you can eat. Correct. I fish for the love of fishing. And also, if I can do something for the environment to remove these pests, then I'm happy to do it. And I'm also, if I want to have fish for dinner, I'm more than happy to support my local fish and chip shop. That was Jason Murdoch, a pest fish buster, ending Jennifer Nichols' story. And staying with our aquatic theme here, there's a new and emerging industry that is planning to boom. A national hatchery network is seen as a vital part of the blueprint to grow the seaweed sector to a $100 million industry, employing some 1,200 people. Joe Kelly is the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seaweed Alliance and told an international symposium in Hobart that the key to that expected growth is all states and territories pulling together to push the industry forward. We're very excited about the National Hatchery Network. So one of the things that we identified through the AgriFutures funded work on the on the Australian seaweed industry blueprint was that a big barrier to getting started with cultivation is just having access to seed stock and the knowledge of how to grow and reproduce seaweeds. So one of the things that we're looking to do through a National Hatchery Network is provide that knowledge and capability and the clean quality seed stock that can actually help seaweed growers get in the water quicker. And that's a similar model to what's been adopted in the likes of the salmon industry where there's a shared hatchery facility, oyster industry and other industries in aquaculture, that's a similar model. Is it because of the biosecurity risks of moving stock between states? Yep, that plays a role in it. So we need to have um, locally collected seed supply and make sure that those seaweeds are native to those areas in which they're growing. But it's also because there's such a... Seaweed's a bit complicated in terms of the life history and the reproduction of it. And so, you know, each currently each 
seaweed company that wants to get in the water has to hire a team of scientists to work that out. What we want to do is take that mystification out of the process and fast track people actually getting in the water and growing by providing that clean quality seed stock. So how soon will some of these startups get their hands on this seaweed stock? Yeah, well we're about to kick this off in collaboration with the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation and the federal government grant of $8.1 million that's coming to the seaweed industry. So we're expecting that to start in the next couple of months and hopefully within 12 months we'll have something to industry. Um, it's a two-year program we're focused on asparagopsis species as the first seaweed type that would be in the National Hatchery Network um, and so that, that will be in the next year to two that we'll have um, seed stock for asparagopsis and then we'll expand it to other species of seaweeds after that. And this is a long-term plan to try and scale up asparagopsis production in Australia? Mm, absolutely. Well, the benefits you know, are obvious. So we've got a, an Australian discovery of a native seaweed that grows all around Australia called asparagopsis and it has been proven by the CSIRO and others to reduce methane emissions in livestock by up to 98% when sprinkled in their food. This is, you know, with MLA and other um, agricultural producers on a mission to reduce their emissions, you know, quickly over the coming decade, this is going to be a key solution that enables them to do that. But while we grow seaweed, we're also providing ocean health benefits. And so it's a double whammy in terms of being, you know, an opportunity to help protect the the marine environment, but also to provide a a climate action product at the end. So once producers, seaweed farmers get their hands on this seed stock and their research as well. What are those regulation barriers that are currently preventing farmers from getting into the industry and making money from it? Yeah, there's a number of barriers then to sort of actually getting um, ocean leases or space in the water to to start to grow this seaweed. It's different in each state. So each state around Australia and the, and the Northern Territory have their own state government uh, aquaculture policies and legislation. And so, you know, we're seeing some of the leaders being Tasmania and South Australia where they've really embraced seaweed. And, and WA has actually recently um, updated their policy as well to move forward with seaweed. Um, but some of the other states are lagging behind. So we're really needing to see seaweed firstly embraced as a part of the aquaculture suite that a state is going to pursue and then appropriate risk adjusted um, policy and regulation to support uh, this new industry that can actually provide net positive benefits. So is there regulation or legislation provided for seaweed within that Fisheries Act? In some states there are. So South Australia, for example, has their own um, seaweed aquaculture legislation, but other states, no. It's part of a broader aquaculture. It is a type of aquaculture within their legislation. And then you've got places like Victoria, which still doesn't recognise seaweed in the as a type of fishery at all. So um, there's some work to do, and the, and the Victorian regulators are starting to work on that. And this is where the, the, the Commonwealth, you feel, might need to play a bigger role in this? Yeah. So we're looking for, you know, and the federal governments, every time they release an aquaculture um, report and part of the national aquaculture strategy that's still in place is around removing red tape and streamlining processes for aquaculture development. So that's, an, and to look at, you know, strategic marine spatial planning 
that will enable these industries to go ahead. The federal government has very much outlined those things for many years as being part of the agenda, but they are now starting to come to the party with investment in terms of helping seaweed specifically move forward. Who's part of the alliance? Um, We've got a bunch of corporate members who are the biggest seaweed growers around Australia, so that includes the likes of Sea Forest and CH4 Global. We've got Harvest Road in there from WA. We've got Tassal who are looking at growing um, uh, seaweed around their um, prawn farms. Uh, So we've got a number of seaweed companies that are coming together to actually try and collaborate on moving the industry forward. And then we've got a whole bunch of about 45 affiliate members as well. Is there a, a gap in knowledge from what the researchers are putting out to how the industry can apply it? Yeah, so we're very much in that, I think it's called the valley of death in terms of translating research into commercial production. Uh, And so that's where we're really relying on, um, you know, research and industry and government to support, you know, and help to de-risk some of that investment to come together to actually make this work. And the National Hatchery Network will be a key part of that. That was Joe Kelly, the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seaweed Alliance, talking there to Larissa Smith about the blueprint for the seaweed industry to expand to a $100 million sector in Australia. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, we all know that the world, and that's companies and governments, are trying to move towards a low-carbon future. Earlier this week, the federal government announced a new report outlining parts to decarbonise heavy industry. That report consulted with 18 industry partners and found that over 1.3 million new jobs could be created through this decarbonisation strategy. Now, under these pathways, warming could be limited to Australia's 1.5 degree Paris Climate Conference target. Grace O'Day spoke with the New South Wales Farmers chairman of Transition to Renewable Energy's task force, Reg Kidd, about his response to the report and how he sees agriculture being affected. First of all, we've got to make sure that things are in place for this to actually happen. I think when we think about in rural areas, we're we're travelling over a lot larger distances and we're using trucks and so forth to take produce down to markets, just say in this state, in Sydney, and uh, trucks and so forth to bring... uh, inputs out into country areas and there's not the vehicles there at this stage the technology anywhere in the world to be able to cover the distances that we have to transport our our goods with at the moment and don't forget there's other machinery that's the tractors that you use on a farm whether it's in horticultural huge tractors they use in broadacre farming cotton grain production and really at the moment they haven't got EV vehicles to undertake that sort of work and they haven't got them you know, to travel those distances. Even in an EV car, I cannot get from Cobar to Broken Hill because that's about 480 kilometres and there's no charging stations in between and if there was, what would be the timelines involved in getting it charged up or if I got down there are other people waiting to charge up how long are those things. So look once we're on top of those sorts of technologies I'm sure it'll be taken up. Mm. So what would you like to see? I'd like to see further uh, inputs into research and uh, not comments being saying that oh look the technology's there because oh, I think it's frustrating to people in regional areas where you see people from Sydney or in some of the city-based media papers sort of say, oh, look, the technology's there. 
why aren't they doing this? Well, I don't think they really appreciate that food and fibre is produced out in regional Australia or regional New South Wales. The distance are further. We use different equipment to get paddocks and so forth ready to grow crops. And secondly, our transport needs. We're travelling a lot larger distances and we don't have the infrastructure that perhaps they've got in the inner city. I think there's a lot of things and we've got to make sure we've got uh, all our I's dotted and T's crossed before we just jump in. Grace O'Day there, speaking to New South Wales Farmers Chairman of the Transition to Renewable Energies Task Force, Reg Kidd. And speaking of environmental concerns, Indigenous rangers from across northern Australia have met in Darwin this week to talk about fire, specifically something that's known as early season burning to protect remote parts of the country, and which also earns carbon credits. Matt Brand spoke to Azania Malay, one of the first women to become a ranger in her region of the Kimberley, and asked how she got involved. While growing up, I always wanted to go out on country, on my mum's side of country, but I didn't get the chance. So I seen a project was going in our corporation. It was the rangers, so I said I wanted to join. So I joined, and I was one of the first Dumby Ranger girls when we first started in 2018. So before 2018, it was just all male rangers in, in your part of the Kimberley? Yep, it was just all male. And in our corporation, as in our ranger group, Dumby Ranger, we only just had male. The women's only started in 2018. Which is wonderful. Tell us about some of the work that, that you and your other female rangers are doing. The work we do in the ranger... Um, we go out, we put out cameras for mammals, for threatened species, and we do marine work, we pick up rubbish, we do fire, like, you know, we get all involved with a lot of things with the boys, we always with the boys working. And just for our audience, we're talking about some very remote country aren't we? You're, you're sort of operating in an area of the Kimberley that is not just remote, but there's so many islands involved as well, yeah? Yeah, it's very remote in our country. We, to get to our country, to our area, we, we can't just jump in a car and drive there. We have to jump in a boat. You spoke about work that you're starting to do in terms of fire management on some of these remote islands. Can you tell us about that and the benefits that you're seeing? Yes. Well, this year we just started... Oh, last year we just started to burn on most of our, our Samaba Island. In Dumbi country we own about 600 islands. So the main, we just main aiming all the bigger islands and the ones with cultural sites, you know, like for us to protect again, you know, not only mammals, our cultural site too. We and it's making a difference? Yeah, it's making a difference a lot as the ra- since the Ranger project, you know. And, came up. and through that wonderful work, not only are you protecting country, but are you able to earn carbon credits from that work? Yes, through our fire, we, we earn carbon credits, and that's how we can 
money can go back into our ranger to buy stuff, you know, like to to get out on country, you know. Help pay for the fuel. Help I reckon that fuel. would be a huge yeah. bill for you guys. Huge bill. Um, also, here is Daphne, who is, uh, is part of the Women's Ranger Group there at Danby. Uh, tell us about how you got involved, Daphne. Um, I became a ranger to protect my, my area. We grew up from a very strong family. Our, our grandparents didn't have the boys, and, and that's where we come in today. We speak for them. We go to the places that they used to talk about. We protect those areas with everything we can. What do you love about the job? I love that I'm a part of it. My connection to the country is very special. And I don't know how to explain it, but I'm a part of that area. And that area is a part of me. That was Daphne Gilby and Azania from the Danby Ranger Group in the Kimberley speaking to Matt Bran at the Savannah Fire Forum being held in Darwin. And that's all we have on the Country Hour for today. For more rural stories, you can head to abc.net.au slash rural. Thanks for joining me and catch you later.